For March 12th, 2012, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 193, Inuyasha-ish. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Live from Austin, Texas, from a barbecue restaurant, it's us. No, we're that's at, right. Yeah, that, <laughs> gosh, Pete, this this hot Texas weather. No, I'm told it's raining in uh, in Austin, Texas. Hold on, hold on. Let me tweet that. I got to tweet that. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. Make sure you hashtag it. Hashtag tweet. Yeah, that's right. That's how it works. <laughs> yes, it's what we do. Uh, it's uh, it's Matt Rather and Pete Fenzel here with you. It's a two hander tonight. We're glad to be podcasting with you. We're not, in fact, in Austin though. That was a joke because the whole internet seems to be in Austin because uh, any anything you hear on these tech blogs that I read is about uh, you know is about what's going on. Is like the the uh, you know the a twit pick or a, like an Instagram a kind of faux grainy Instagram pick of. Um, you know, the front, uh, the kind of nostalgic Americana facade of a barbecue restaurant of some, you know, of some kind. Uh, I guess uh, I've, I've been to Texas because I, uh, I have family there. My godmother lives in Texas, but uh, never, never been to South by Southwest. Any overthinkers at South by Southwest, be sure to, you know, tweet, uh, be sure to hashtag us or tweet us or hash, you know. You still there? Yeah. <laughs> you just ran out of social media juice there, Matt. <laughs> I did. Absolutely. Hold on. I got it. I have to refresh. I have oh, to re- okay. <laughs> I'm going to refresh my, my tweet stream. I'm gonna, Your tweet stream? Yeah. I'm gonna Is that a thing a, now? Okay. Yeah, I'm going to go make a maintenance release in the other way. You know, I was live streaming, but then I saw a urologist. Look, let me pitch you a really innovative, hyper-local <laughs> social media product. <laughs> um, yeah. My, uh, my, my favorite... Uh, my favorite I, I, South by Southwest thing is the thing of Merlin Mann giving a, a, a fake website pitch for a, a website called Flocked Up early in the uh, early in the social media days during the kind of the ascendance of of social media various social media things and um, uh, it it contained something you can you can search for it on that internet uh, Merlin Mann Flocked Up. Uh, and it's um, it contains something called flock bucks, which uh, the tagline was like money but monetized. <laughs> uh, you know, I thought that was great. Uh, yep, yep. You know, people say people say to us, "Why don't you monetize overthinking it?" And we say, "No, because it's about the music. It's really just about the music." <laughs> you really, I just list them the products that we sell. Yeah, exactly. They're welcome to buy. Why don't you monetize <laughs> overthinking it? There are two ads on every page load. Uh, I guess we could put three. Okay, you know what? Coming soon. Overthinking it. Monetized. Three ads on every page load. I already removed page breaks from most of my articles, even though they're like three or four thousand words long, due to popular outcry against the possibility I was exploiting it for advertising revenue. We, uh, which which is so absurd. Be like, oh man, if I'm gonna get make some money off those ads, everyone's gonna really love this piece about Jean Duhardin <laughs> and his French movies from the '90s and 2000s. Do people oh, really and- complain to you about that? You know, there's in the oh, redesign no. in the this year the the 2012 redesign of Overthinking It. There is always a single page button. On multi-page yep. articles, so you can, uh, if you wish, view your articles as a single page, and that also helps for saving them to Instapaper uh, and whatnot. Pro tip: overthinking it. Pro tip: monetize that. Yeah. All right, bam. 
Yeah, All pre- right, that's it. Yeah, and also we're going to make our, our podcasts a lot shoulder. So this has been Overthinking It. Visit us on the web at www. No. Wait, 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 wait. We haven't even gotten to the question yet. Oh, that's right. So um, I read a news item this week that said uh, both, uh, both former vice presidential candidate Governor Sarah Palin and uh, former presidential candidate Senator John McCl- McCain. McClain. And said McClain. Um, (sighs) I I wish that guy would run for Congress. Um, Senator John McCain have pledged not to uh, watch uh, the the film Game Change with Ed Harris and... and Julianne Morris, Sarah Palin, um, the, the quote, the money quote from the senator was, that'll be a cold day in Gila Bend, Arizona, uh, when I, and, and I guess it doesn't get cold there. I don't know. Do we have any listeners in Gila Bend, Arizona? Um, Hold on, I'll get on the Twoot stream and we'll find out. Get on Definitely. the, yeah, yeah, the Twoot, uh, yeah, Twoot, Twoot that out to everybody. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, but we didn't uh, watch it, and we're we're going to um, uh, talk about it anyway. So uh, so Pete, uh, in honor of the premiere on TV, oh excuse me, HBO uh, of the film, the television film, the movie of the week, Game Change, uh, about the two thousand eight uh, presidential American presidential election. What two thousand eight event would you like to memorialize in a movie of the week uh, of your own, Pete? Uh, man, this is tough. I, I will say, in case you can't tell, I'm a little bit hoarse. Uh, I went to some college hockey games this weekend, so I am sipping on some new. And this is the I think this is the official brand of overthinking it. <laughs> uh, new uh, Yogi brand honey lemon throat comfort tea, also sponsored by Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, the official tea. <laughs> Of Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. Um, so I, I'm going to be trying to keep my voice up through the course of the podcast. So, okay, 2008. First of all, one of my favorite HBO movies is based off of the events of 2008, which is the movie Too Big to Fail, which is like the greatest story ever told, but about Lehman Brothers, right? Where it's like all these crazy actors, and, and Bill Pullman is the CEO of J.P. Morgan, and like Tony Shalhoub is the CEO of Morgan Stanley, and it's just this ridiculous melodrama and awesome. So I recommend that movie, but I can't say the financial crisis because then I lose my job. No, 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 no. I think that there's a lot of stuff that happened in 2008. It was a huge year, huge year for politics, huge year for all sorts of stuff. I'm not going to laundry list things because it'll take away options for Matt to name things after me. But I think that we need to focus on the number one most important event, at least to the people that I know here in Boston, that happened in 2008, uh, which was the drafting of third in the NFL draft of Boston College quarterback Matt Ryan. Um, this, this is the kind of thing that uh, was a very big deal around here. Um, and, and he went on to play for the Atlanta Falcons, which this year they were very good, and he was in the Pro Bowl. Um, and so I feel like what people haven't done, though, is really investigate the psychological side of it, right? Like the political side of it. Like what was happening in his mind? Like what, sure. what, what about Jake Long, the, the, defensive, uh, the offensive tackle for the Miami Dolphins who was drafted first? Like did he have a sexual relationship with a werewolf? Like any number of these things could be. <laughs> and the thing is that it's a story that hasn't been told yet. And, and I really, I mean, yes, it's been covered extensively in every single sports, uh, sports media franchise across the entire United States for weeks on end and hours on end. There are multiple, multiple days Days of people talking about this and nothing else for at least like you know 17 or 18 hours but it's still an untold story and and we really we haven't heard about the the, the what the subaltern 
take on it is, right? Let's sort of like, you know, we know like the Hamlet equivalent of the Matt Ryan draft. We don't know the their eyes are watching God equivalent of the Matt Ryan draft, mm-hmm. which is funny because part of why he's so famous is he's a white white football player, quarterback guy. Um, but uh, but I think that we need to get to get to the heart of it, cut through that dialectic, really say, okay, man, who this is the guy who steps into the shoes of Michael Vick, right? Like this is the guy who goes from you know it takes takes the place of this guy who's beating up dogs and uh, let's do a twenty minute dreamscape montage of what's right. happening out of his head yeah in favor i think that this really is going to nail it i, I think it's that a, it's a kind of eternal sunshine of the spotless mind meets you know what like a like a like a pretty solid play action pass like you know, <laughs> like you fake the handoff and you go for it you know and i think that's important you got to make people buy the fake it's really a play action for the pass of a movie where it starts being about um his bc career but ends up being about his nfl career nice it's a huge twist because you don't expect that to happen halfway ah, through. You, you took it and you turned it. And you know what we would use? Spinning newspapers. That's how we would communicate these things. As the newspaper spins. And yeah. then like, Although you, know. you could have spinning iPhones, but then they fall. It's like, why are you spinning my iPhone? And it breaks. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, I, I was going to go with uh, the April 8th, 2000 barn burner, uh, the Privy Council of Sark dismantling its feudal system to compi- comply with the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, and, you know, later in the year, their first uh, elections uh, were held uh, on Sark, which I Wikipedia tells me is an island in the Channel Islands. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, not the Isle of Man, which is not in the Channel Islands. No, you know what they call people from the Isle of Man? What? They're called the Manx, the M-A-N-X. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have a close relationship with the Channel Islands being from one of their colonies of New Jersey. (laughs) 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 So it's interesting to see that's what's happening in that nice little bathtub that they've got going over there. So wait, so Sark had a feudal system and they only dismantled it in 2008? Yes. Like you could be the vassal, you could be like a vassal to the liege lord of Sark and be called upon to defend his interests on the field of honor. Yes. They appear. I'm looking at their Wikipedia page, and I'm seeing a picture of a wooden wheeled wagon. This is um, this is kind of an old fashioned kind of place. Yeah, horse drawn. Yeah, horse drawn buggy. There, isn't that nice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, excellent. So, uh, but no, that's that's not my choice. My choice has what to do. Twi- what a bait and switch. What a twist. <laughs> you have a choice. It's amazing. It's uh, yeah. No, you thought I was going for the handoff. Yeah. Um, Fidel Castro, on February 19th, 2008, announced his resignation as president of Cuba uh, to be succeeded by Raul Castro uh, on February 24th. So uh, I, I want to, you know, I, I want to understand what was going on in their minds in this, you know, astonishing um, transfer of power. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I want to know, did, did they have a sexual relationship with werewolves? You know? yeah, exactly. You see, now you're talking. Now you're pitching something that I can sell. Now we're going to put butts in the seats of the couches that are watching HBO. Yeah. This is what's going to happen, definitely. No, I think, that, I think honestly, if you look at Fidel Castro, it is hard to believe that he has not at some point had a sexual relationship with a werewolf. Uh-huh. That is a fierce man who looks like he needs to tame the wild beast. Um, what am I even talking about? It's a, this you know, it's a Cain and Abel story of brother against, you know, brother yeah. against brother, you know, to, vying for the presidency of true. You know, the island nation of Cuba. Is there like a crazy caper scene where Michael Phelps has to pull Raul like from Miami 
to Cuba and like in order to assume the rulership of the government. <laughs> well, now Raul Castro was in in Cuba the whole time, right? He was the the like the or so they would like us to believe. Why do you think they picked Michael Phelps? Because he's too small and streamlined to show up on radar he's the with those special pants. Minister in Cuba for like <laughs> fifty years. Uh, well. <laughs> you know. Fair enough. Fair enough. I guess we'll go with your version of events. We'll go oh, with the yeah, Hamlet no, Michael, version. Michael Phelps, yeah, he, he on a secret overnight fl- flight from Beijing. Yeah, exactly. And he, he said did a, yeah. he did a uh, like a halo drop, you know, <laughs> into the Atlantic Ocean uh, off the coast of Miami. Michael, Fe- he he actually it wasn't even a halo drop; it was just a a, a very long dive, yeah. a, very, <laughs> a very high dive into yes, the ocean yes. out of a helicopter, uh, Michael Weston style from Burn Notice. Spoiler alert for Burn Notice. There's a part where he jumps out of a helicopter and falls, you know, I don't know, several hundred feet. So wait, you the... said Halo drop? There's no. a, is that not yeah. like in the game Halo, or is there no. another meaning? No, it's a high-altitude, low opening. Oh. It's an acronym or an initialism. You know, there's a difference between an acronym and an initialism. Couldn't tell you what it is. but I, No, I th- I th- Halo is an acronym because it's, it's a pronounceable word, right? Isn't that the difference? Oh, okay. And an initialism, yeah. is, uh, an initialism is an acronym that is non-pronounced. Or an ini- oh, so, okay, an acronym is an initialism that is pronounceable. That is my thinking. I'm familiar with that. I'm familiar with the classification of acronym as a subset abbreviation. I'm not necessarily familiar with initialism. But my understanding... To extrapolate from what I know is that the initialism NRA is not an acronym, but the familiar term is an acronym. Inside the organization when it gets feisty. No, you're not taking our guns. Exactly. See, it's an acronym. It works very well. It's like a little barking. You'll, you'll take my initialism out of my cold dead hands. When you can, yeah, absolutely. And I'll be shouting at you, or else I won't, uh, because I will be dead. Hey, Pete. Do you think uh, do you think pop culture projects should be researched? Do I think pop culture projects should be researched? Uh, I think so. I mean, I think that there's a different there's a different um, barrier to research. For, different- for example, for our movies about the sexual relationships with werewolves of a uh, NFL draft pick and uh, of the outgoing and incoming presidents of Cuba. Um, do, do we need to really get into werewolf sexuality? You know what I mean? Do we need to really do a lot of internet searching, a lot of slash fiction, you know, a lot of uh, kind of gothic horror remix? I mean, uh, th- you know. this, is, this is the wrong week to ask that, man. You know why, right? Because <laughs> of that thing that we talked about not doing the podcast about, which was that move by PayPal this week to ban uh, – to, to – Convince publishing house, electronic publishing houses to ban unacceptable textual uh, pornography, right. right? Like saying like you can't have bestiality in your book anymore. Like it's it's one thing to be doing it or be taking a picture of it, but and there's like a, a sort of slippery slope and weirdness around this rule involving like people having like relationships with werewolves or elves that have like animal characteristics or Inuyasha. Like you can't publish a sex book with Inuyasha because he's part demon or whatever. Um, there's but like Smashwords was getting pressure from PayPal. Are, are demons animal? Demons aren't animals in the same way that like you know an elf with cat ears is part animal. Uh, I think in, I think a kind of like you know is a kind of ectoplasmic or you know I don't know supernatural being, right? Well, I mean in the Western tradition, a demon is somewhat involved with Cartesian dualism and like the idea uh, and sort of trinitarianism, right? And this idea of like the nat- the differing natures of of a being and of matter and all of all these other things that you can have. 
a god that is both a person and an entity that is non-physical uh, or physical, depending upon how you look at it, right? Like that's that's part of the Western tradition. And then on the the other side of that, we have our demons and our ghosts, right, who have this like incorporeality to them, right? Um, and in the Japanese tradition, the demons tend to have more animalistic characteristics. Although although in the in the um, well, because it's more connected with Shinto, I believe, and, and more and ideas of the spirit of a thing, right, which is not the same as Cartesian dualism. Although there is an analogy there, but um, but yeah, but Inuyasha in particular has animal ears. I believe I've not watched a great deal of Inuyasha. So I just know that it came on before Aqua Teen Hunger Force back in the day, or maybe it was after Dragon Ball. I'm not sure. It was like that pocket that I didn't watch. But uh, but I do think there are different definitions of demons that could lead to PayPal judging whether the. The, the sex fan fiction about those things should be banned, right? Depending upon whether it's close enough to an actual animal. Uh, and this is just such a ridiculous thing that is happening. But um, we don't necessarily have to talk about that whole thing. Seems like kind of a slam dunk. Let people do their thing. It's politically inconvenient for an organization to allow that sort of business to take place. But at the same time, there's people who have things that are going on in the world and they want to keep them outside of the general consumption if nobody gets hurt. You know, it's a tough thing to talk about. You want to ju- yeah, it is. Uh, it is, and I mean, I guess we have to admit at least that there there is kind of a gray line because you know, if you if you provide a service, yeah, you know, suppose you're the water company. You know what I mean? And like, uh, I, I don't know, you're not going to provide water to criminal enterprises or something like, or I, it's not no. even criminal enterprises. It's things, it's people you don't like. You're not going right. to provide water to people you don't like. You know, Pay, PayPal is enough like a utility as, as far as I'm concerned that it should have some kind of, uh, you know, universal service obligation, right? Yeah. I mean, I think we've seen a couple of moves on their part over the course of the last couple of years and I can't get too much into the whole situation around that because sure. of other stuff involving it. But I mean, it definitely seems like, uh, the more that the mechanisms of distribution are um, non-physical, well, I mean, they are physical because everything's physical, right? Like electronic distribution is still physical and it still requires energy. But specifically if you're talking about like book publishing and movie distribution and like the idea of, of you don't have to go to the store to pick up a book, you, you download it, right? You don't have to go to the theater to watch a movie. You watch it on your iPad or on your Flugel flag or whatever the new thing from South by Southwest is. Um, it's not Flugel flag. That one, that one is – that's just totally infeasible. It has giant handles on the side. It's ridiculous. Um, but uh, – there, they, there is an idea where a lot of the things that we have going on, I think, these services that we don't really think about, a lot of them are heavily regulated, right? And then you have a lot of services associated with the distribution of culture that are not regulated as heavily. Um, and we take for granted that people won't be able to exert control on it. And it's also very possible that PayPal doesn't even really want to do this, right? It's not that they want to be jerks. I mean, they might want to be jerks. They might be like, I hate furries, Right, like PayPal, we uh, PayPal, we hate furries. We we stand against them. You know, my brother was a furry, and he ruined our life by squandering all of our money on animal costumes. Right, so it's like we hate furries personally. We have a vendetta against them. It, it might just be that it's like politically difficult for the company to maintain uh, that sort of relationship once the precedent has been set that they're allowed to cut off services and that like, they won't be punished for cutting off services. Right. Right. So, so it's like, it's difficult when you're talking about public companies in a social media world providing a service that really needs to be provided without judgment of various kinds of legal activity. Um, you know, I mean, like, there's so many barriers that are coming down. Yeah, now. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we'd be fools if we think that there weren't people like PayPaling their drug dealers somewhere, you know, right? Oh, yeah, sure, definitely. Right. Or, and know, I mean, it's, it's also not necessarily PayPal's decision. They could be getting pressure from the government that we don't know about. They could be getting pressure for other people. Right. But, um, and the other thing is like, 
you know, I, I was listening to a, a podcast this week about cash, right? And about like how cash, they want cash to go away. This person wrote a book about cash wanting to cash, go away. Cash money. Cash money, you know, dollar dollar bills, y'all, as it were, specifically the hundred dollar bill with the idea that so much criminal enterprise takes place in cash that if you get rid of cash in some sort of feasible way, you will remove the cost of criminal enterprise to people. And that just seems kind of ridiculous. So like the idea that you're going to stop doing heroin because you have you, you can't pay for it. Yeah, because we have to do a yeah, because we have to do a bank transfer, right? Exactly, because you have to do a wire transfer and, and and everyone who does a wire transfer for heroin is going to be arrested. Right, like every single person, right? Um and I mean I don't know. Again, I can't I can't I don't want to talk too much about what this means for banking institutions specifically. I have to sidestep that question because it is an interesting question and I love to talk to people about it. Oh, but I can't do it in a public forum. Um but what I can talk about is its cultural implications, which is is chilling. You know, like it's it's definitely chilling, and uh, and and at a time when our culture has fragmented a great deal, and a lot of specialized interests are coming up, and a lot of that specialized interest has led to innovations and exciting things, and and growth opportunities, and where future growth opportunities are increasingly dependent upon these kind of fractured, you know, innovative, you know, sub communities. And not all of them are making furry fiction, but some of them are. And like, why is it that they can't use their payment system? You know, like. It does. It does. It seems like if you're going to be providing an infrastructure to support such a broadly devolved system of of, of products and services, then you need to find out some way of dealing with the politics of it. That well, is, uh, not also, I mean, there's also kind of a slippery slope argument to be made. I think, right? Like, because first they came for the furries, you know. Well, yeah. I mean, there is, and they're, they're, I mean, but I mean, I think you don't even have to go slippery slope. Like, you don't have to say like, well, at some point in the future they might do this. Like, you just say like, they could do this. You know, like, and it's feasible. Like, like if they're doing this, I'm not saying that they necessarily, oh, well, tomorrow they're going to lock up all the school teachers, right? Like, it doesn't even have to be that bad, but it's like, what are the other groups that are caught up in this specific policy? And you don't even have to invoke this slippery slope fallacy. You can just be like, okay, well, what priority does this show? And like, what are the things that, that what benefit does this accrue to them? And like, when could they reasonably apply it in the future, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely interesting stuff. Uh, definitely interesting stuff. But not yeah, as interesting. Yeah, that's that's the thing that we were going to to. We were uh, going to talk about it for a variety uh, of reasons related to controversy. If you want to talk about it in the comments, that's great. There is something that is somewhat more interesting. Or in the forums. Or in the forums because we have yes. forums now and overthinking it, and we we actively court controversy in the forums. You know, that's true. That is, I got to take some spirit of vengeance tea right here. I got to cool my throat off a little bit. That's all right. You you drink uh, your yogi uh, throat soothing honey lemon tea, the official tea, tea of overthinking it, and I'll have a nice sip of my yogi brand decaf green tea kombucha. Uh, <laughs> it tastes delicious and it makes you poop good. That's that's uh, decaf green tea kombucha, the other official tea of overthinking it, and yeah, Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. All right, we're back. <laughs> So the reason you were asking, is it good to do research? Is it good to do or, research yes. on pop culture projects? That it is, is say, good and important. Let me tell you a, let me du- tell you a quick dulce, story. Dulce et decorum est. <laughs> well, when I was in high school, uh, I on days where we didn't have much to do because we just finished a test or it was the end of the year or whatever, in Latin class, we would sometimes watch movies that were about Roman times as an educational ex- uh, exercise. Things like I, Claudius, things like uh, – we didn't watch Caligula. But uh, and if we were, if I were a little bit younger, we might have watched Gladiator. But I, but I was not. Uh, and at some point, we did in fact watch the Kevin Sorbo Hercules movies uh, that led into the Hercules: The Legendary Journeys television show. Uh, we watched all of Hercules in the Lost City and the first half of Hercules and the Amazon Women before the teacher had to turn it off because it was too ridiculous. But the reason we watched it was not because the story of. I mean, there was part of it being with I Claudius. It's legitimately very. 
um, educational. Like you're learning about this is this is like essentially like a work of historical slash nonfiction, mm. right? Like there's a lot of insight in there into like possible interpretations of historical fact. Um, with Hercules, we were not watching it because of the story of Hercules or even really the engaging with the myths. Uh, it was because the the art direction and costume design uh, the teacher thought was really interesting, and that the research that they'd gone into determining what the people wore, not necessarily what the Amazon women wore, right? Like the the scenes which he would stop were the scenes where they would like walk through a market, right? And he'd be like, "Look at this! Like look at this pot! Look at this cart! Like look at the hat that this woman is wearing! Like these are all th- that was kind of metric and, and lyrical. Look at all these things. The, these if you look at your notes." sheets that i gave out to you these are similar to like traditional modes of dress you can see that these are kind of greek you know like this is taking place in greece right that sort of thing and of course it was a latin class but you're involved in the classical tradition um and in that sense the research that they did on the show while you could argue like didn't necessarily make the show all that much better it did add a level to me that was important because otherwise i wouldn't have been able to watch it in class uh but it also i think i think these textures and stuff they make a difference so the sense okay so that's at the level of art direction let me let me tell you why i i asked the question some some of the uh the audience of this podcast especially some of the people who listen to the tft podcast where ryan sheely and i talk about teen soap operas um the uh, from a you know sociological political science and behavioral economics perspective uh the which is the most ridiculous thing in the world to do but we really enjoy it so you know check out the tft podcast if you haven't already uh they know that i am and i i you know i i say it now in my last week i am uh, a graduate student in an mfa program at the university of california los angeles in acting and uh my final project the final thing in fact my last act as a graduate student on saturday will be to um, perform in a play that's written by uh, Antoine Fisher, uh, the subject and the writer of Denzel Washington's 2002 movie called Antoine Fisher. And uh, Antoine, uh, who has written and is directing, has been I've been working with him for the last three months to uh, to sort of develop this this new play, this world premiere play uh, about his life. It's it's a different presentation of some of the same material from the movie. Um, from the Denzel Washington movie uh, about his life and his background, uh, which is fascinating and kind of what he, what he has gone through uh, is fascinating. And it's, it's a heartbreaking story. It's a, it's a terrible story in a lot of places. Uh, but it's also, you know, it's, it's a story of kind of overcoming and forgiveness and kind of moving beyond a, a terrible past. And um, anyway, so uh, Antoine uh, grew up in Cleveland. He had kind of a rough upbringing in a foster home in Cleveland and, and was sort of on the streets in sort of in very, various capacities for a little while. Uh, but then he joined the Navy, and it was in the Navy that he he says he sort of turned his life around. And so um, one of the things that, that, that we've done is research for this, uh, this play, uh, the, the premiere of this play, is to go to the naval base in San Diego, and uh, we were given a tour of a uh, uh, U.S. Navy destroyer. The, the one we were on happens to be the USS Decatur. Um, and... Uh, and it was absolutely, it was totally fascinating to me. I mean, I, I think that a lot of civilians who don't sort of know, know people in the military, and I guess I guess there are some, um, don't don't have a sense that like it's it's this entire. Uh, other world, this sort of this sort of parallel world with a different set of traditions and customs, you know, a different set of values, uh, and you know, a different set of kind of everyday practices. Um, and uh, we, um, so we did this. Four actors from the play went down. I was one of them, and and 
did this tour, uh, and one of the chiefs, one of the uh, you know chief petty officers uh, who is um, uh, on this ship. Uh, gave us a tour around and actually he was, he was really generous with half of his day and sort of talked to us for hours and hours and hours and, and, and told stories. I was, I've actually, uh, of a couple people, I've been, been lucky enough to work in theater with a couple people who have been in the Navy and they're all great storytellers. And I think that like when you're underway on a ship, uh, at, at a certain point you read all the books you have, you know? Like at a certain point, you can't play any more uh, DVDs or something, or you know what have you. Like at a certain point, you 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 gotta sit around and talk to people and and tell stories. And and this uh, this uh, this chief was just spinning these these incredible um, uh, you know tales of of stuff happening stuff happening in the navy uh yeah, war stories i guess like literally war stories not even figuratively war stories literally war stories and and sort of walk and sort of oriented us to to what life in the navy is like so that we can portray more accurately uh at least that's the hope um people in the navy uh you know uh, ancillary to antoine you know telling his story through through this play so you know so it's actually not a question of it's not a question of like better art direction you know what i mean and and so right. I, I right and so it's a different it's a different sort of thing that is to say am i a better am i a better performer of uh am i a better performer of a story that happens to take place in the navy because i've i happen to have been um been you know recently taken on a on a tour of a ship and been able to ask a lot of questions about uh, you know about sort of deportment and and about bearing and about like uh and, and kind of been able to observe you know people in that environment i i say so but sort of being an actor i i am kind of uh you know a little bit uh, not superstitious what's the word i'm i'm a little bit kind of non-materialistic i'm a little bit spiritual about it like the, yeah. um you know what i mean the idea that there is like a kind of you're a little bit in, like you're like inuyasha <laughs> yes and and right and if you were to write uh if you were to write like uh sexual fan fiction about me paypal would not sell it <laughs> yeah right yeah exactly so so what you so we're talking about a couple of different things right. right so we're talking about doing research on a subject because you're going to represent something about that subject as part of in of the act or yeah yeah, in a fictional work, you're going to you're going or, to have or a dramatic work or a or a painting, but in a non in a non documentary kind of work. Right, right, right. So it's a fictional work, but there still is you know what would structurally be referred to as a representational function right. that's going on. Right, you're corresponding, you're you're imitating something that you think of as real. You know, even though we can argue whether any of this is real, but let's not let's like assume that the navy exists for the moment. Um, you're you're trying to represent this thing, and you're using your fiction as a vehicle for your representation, at least partially, because it has some part of the overall composition. There's some sort of reason for doing it. So there's this idea, and that that I think covers a lot of different kinds of stuff. Um, from like the art direction stuff, but also to like as an actor, more basic things like how to pronounce words, you know, and like how and like how to tie your shoes, if even if the costume designer isn't responsible for that. Like, right. do, do soldiers, do sailors on ships uh, of a particular type have to walk a little bit hunched over because the ceilings are low? Yeah, right. Or like, step like over. You know. I mean, when you go through a hatch, there, you know, there's yeah. not. Uh, the hatches there's a uh, a little piece that sticks up off the floor so i I think so that water doesn 't get from sort of compartment to compartment, and that you can uh you know what i mean if there's if there's 
water. Though I guess I, there would be bigger problems if that. Um, so, right, you know what I mean? So that, like, every time you go through a door, you have to step up six inches over the little barrier uh, and the thing. And that's, you know what I mean? That's a, that's a very specific behavior that you wouldn't necessarily know if you hadn't actually been in the environment. Right, exactly. But on the other side, there's something that more aligns closely with what would be called like the expressive function, right? Or like something that's denoting a meaning, or even a more poetic function, right? Like the, this this idea that um, you want to know about the thing that you're talking about because what you have to say about it is going to be affected by that knowledge, and not in a factual or representational way. That there's that if you have, I mean, you use the word spiritual, you know, I'll use the word inuyasha, right? So there's something inuyasha-ish in the sense, and I mean this in the sense of like partially demonic, like you know, partially uh, like of, of a sort of non-strictly physicalist character, and it can be physical. I mean, that's that's not a distinction that's useful between like sort of syntax and, and physicalism, but. Um, but, but and perhaps the Inuyasha thing is a bit of a stretch. But the point is that there's something in the more general esoteric reason for why you're doing this play. Well, the expressive. Um, I mean, I think you said it right. In the, yeah. it's the expressive function versus the representation. Yeah, you're not necessarily culture. trying to show somebody what a sailor looks like. You're trying to make an expression that involves sailors, and you feel like without the, having the knowledge yourself, not necessarily putting that knowledge in a direct way into the into the play. Um, or again, if we're talking as I as I'm assuming we're talking about the upcoming uh, motion picture uh, blockbuster Battleship, which uh-huh. I'm sure thoroughly researched in a very similar way as you. In fact, I'm actually going to assume that you, this is cover, and you've signed a non disclosure agreement. You're not allowed to talk about the fact that this trip was actually researched for the movie Battleship. Um, but like, at any rate, putting that aside, um, there are things that you are researching because you want to put them into the work that you are doing. There are also things that you are research as a representation. There are also things that you're researching because they will affect how you feel about your work. They will affect how you process that work. They will affect how you express it yourself. Um, that there's maybe a tone, a feel, something that uh, doesn't operate on the same kind of, well, I mean, you know discursive functions like like you can't necessarily describe in like like a critic of acting can talk about acting in certain ways but it's never really going to be the same thing as actually acting a part like actually acting i mean we could have this discussion and maybe i'll ask what your take is on this because there is a belief that the function of consciousness of action of these things is functionally analogous to the function of a language such that if you don't know how to describe a thing or you don't have a term for a thing or a symbol for a thing or a representation of a thing like that thing can't really exist as an idea right like our ability to think is dictated by language but at the same time at least from my own experience as a performer i feel like as an acting involves uh qualities of volition that's how I would describe it, like, like act, vol- volative actions um, that are non-syntactical uh, and that are enriched by exposure to different sorts of content. Um, I mean, does that, make, does that mean anything to you? I mean, you're the graduate student. I don't know if you <laughs> Yeah, it's more of a trade school than graduate school in the traditional sense. But, um, the, you know, in the sense of, uh, you know, talking about discursive functions. And so uh, you said a volative action that is non-syntactic Yes. So acting something acting is a volative uh, f- action that is non-syntactic that is enriched by uh, certain kinds of uh, exposure to different experiences. Yes, yes, yes. And I think that's, I, yeah, I think that's right insofar as I understand what you're saying. 
Okay, yeah, I mean, volative is probably not even a word, but I was just trying to come up with a word that... that, Involving volition, you mean. Yes, like the the qualities of choice, but of course the quality of choice then implies a syntactical choice, right? The the quality of will, except the quality of will implies all sorts of other kinds of philosophical schools. I've been trying, I was trying to come up with a word that expressed really just that core idea uh, of moving forward with something, whether, whether you're just part of a wheel of determinism or whether it's like a free choice doesn't really matter, but just like that sense that you have within yourself that you're going to do this thing uh-huh. right and, and that that um whatever that is uh you can do that with words or you can do it in a way that is difficult to describe um you can you can make different actions as an actor that from the outside appear to have syntactical purposes you know raising your eyebrows like twisting your mouth but from your perspective as inhabiting your own body the information that's passing back and forth doesn't seem to function that much like a language mm-hmm. um this is what i'm saying and then it would be tough Presumably to integrate research into that sort of thinking because research is semiotic and representational so for the most part, unless you're going there and you're empathizing with these people in some way or like um, you're, you're having some sort of other kind of coding of the information. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's um, you see, like in the in the the arena uh, in the domain of like production design or costume design. Uh, it is those those are kind of syntactic functions in that like there is a yeah. syntax of for example if you're doing a, a a military drama you know there's syntax to to military uniforms you know what I mean and yeah, the, yeah you know each part of it means a different thing and the the different sort of insignia and kind of indications on a on a military uniform add up to a language and it's I, I mean if you've ever tried to like you know read rank you know or read uh, 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 rate rank rank rate. Um, you know, uh, in the Navy, like it's, it's incredibly difficult, you know, and you need a lot of specialized knowledge already just to understand what all the pins mean. Um, and the, you know, the different insignia and things like this. So like, uh, yeah, so that is, but like, is there, uh, right. So the question, I mean, the question that we're asking is, is there, uh, is there a kind of non, non syntactical, is there a kind of experiential or, uh, expressive, uh, side to this that benefits from, you know, kind of going and hanging out uh, in the environment. I, I I don't know. I think I think there is. Um, I but a lot of a lot of people think that that there isn't. And in the world of acting, David Mamet is the the kind of famous one. He wrote a a, a book called True and False: uh, Heresy and Common Sense for the Actor, where the kind of the money quote about this is um, is. Uh, Oh, uh, when when someone in uh, in Hamlet says a, a method actor, that is to say, a, well, that's let's actually not engage the. Method. Yeah, that's a whole. Uh, that's a whole yeah, that's other. A whole other. That's a whole other thing, and let's not get yeah. into it. But um, an actor who is who is concerned about all this kind of airy fairy stuff, uh, uh, Inuyasha stuff, yeah. if you will. Um, about acting when you know when when playing the play Hamlet and uh, you know you hear the line did smite the sledded Pollock on the ice, you know that actor wants to know the history of the war between Denmark and Poland and wants to know the thickness of the ice and it ain't going to help, um, you know and and that's the uh, 
that's the uh, that's the the David Mamet point of view, which is that like it's actually it's influenced by Eisenstein and some of these other theorists, where like the the performance, not just the meaning of a film, but the meaning of a, of an actor's performance, is created inside the mind of the audience. Your job uh, as an actor is to not f it up, but you know what I mean by like inserting too much actory stuff into. Uh, uh, you know, in into the performance that sort of really smacks more of you, of your own personality yeah. and of your own agenda uh, and of your own kind of wishes and needs than it does uh, contribute to the uh, uh, to whatever story or whatever kind of aesthetic experience you're trying to uh, yeah. to to convey. Um, yeah. So, you know what you know, this? Oh, yeah. go ahead. I was just saying. You know what this makes me think of is uh, it makes me think of uh, the the PU the pickup artist community. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Because the seduction community. Yeah, yeah. Which I, I, read, I used to read that literature when I was in college, and uh, and I could I could talk. We could have a whole podcast about that because I have a lot of, it, of thoughts about it. But um, one of the things that and I, that I, one of the conclusions I eventually came to about that kind of work is that there's a whole lot of information in there that it, that is like. Very difficult to demonstrate that it has a lot of value if you consider it being applied to sort of a neutral base, right? It's like if I have a person who is just walking down the street and just like we're assuming that this person is in some way whole, right? And then you you say, hey, hey, person, you should insult someone's nails, <laughs> you know, because you want to have sex with them, right, is what, is what this would say. Yeah, I believe that's, um, uh, I believe that's known as a neg hit piece. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm deliberately not – talking about exactly what this would work but um the david mamet standpoint was like no you know that's absurd you know this thing that you're doing you're importing so much nonsense into this act that's really very simple and there is a way where uh you do eventually get to that point with the literature i think a lot of people do who mature out of it right who like are you know have trying to build their confidence or they don't know what they're doing and they they look to this literature for guidance because they're in that sort of scary like adolescent post-adolescent period where they don't know what's going on um and eventually you come to the conclusion that you don't need to import all that stuff. But in the meantime, and I think that this is true of acting in my own experience of it, you know, you don't show up to a to a performance or a rehearsal as like a neutral whole entity. Right. That that is just like standing there and as long as you are fed and you are petted, you know, and complimented <laughs> adequately, uh, you will be capable of doing everything that you need to do in a, a thoroughly neutral manner that is influenced only by the text. I think that's naive to assume that a human being is even capable of doing that kind of thing. Uh and so something like an elaborate system of uh, coming to an emotional understanding of a part to a large degree can be less about that understanding being important to the part and more about it kind of foiling other attempts by like other aspects of yourself to interfere with communicating what's happening in the play. Right. Right. Like if you make, if you were just to go out there and say the word, it would be terrible for a whole bunch of reasons you don't understand. And the director and the playwright would also hate it. So you yeah, need or to reasons, fix it. I mean, depending on your level of self knowledge, uh, reasons that you do understand. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. That is to say your experience is different from the experience of the characters or, you know what I mean? Your accent yeah. is different from the experience of the characters. Your, you know what I mean? Uh, and, and, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, it's it's. I think you're right to frame it as a sense of, uh, as a sense of kind of foiling foiling all the things that prevent you 
uh, from acting. It, this puts me in mind of Douglas Adams in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the, the late great Douglas Adams, I should say, in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, when it kind of got even more outlandish and Arthur Dent learned to fly. And I think the fourth book, yeah. uh, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, he says that uh, uh, in, in, in the narrator's introduction of flying, he says that flying is the art of throwing yourself at the ground and missing. Right, right, right. That is to say, but, you're not, yes. uh, you're, 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 um, you're just inhibiting all of the things that keep you from uh, flying. You know, it's not that you're trying to fly; it's that you are uh, doing everything to throw yourself at the ground, except failing to do that. Right, 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 right. And I think I think that's interesting in the standpoint of doing research for cultural acts. Right, like maybe why you go to the ship is so that if you're standing in the stage in the space. You can pull on the experience of having been in the ship, not because you need the experience, but because it needs to supplant the experience of being on that stage all those other times, right, that you were on that stage. Maybe that, I mean, again, I don't know. I'm not speaking about you personally. I mean, as an improviser, the rules are everything is totally different. I mean, as a primarily improvisational performer, I don't get to research my parts because I don't know what they're going to be. But I do research. And, and, you know, you research, uh, you pay attention to things and you learn things and then you sort of store it in your memory and then you can bring it out during shows and you don't know what you're going to bring out when, but it still can be useful to have had experiences doing certain kinds of yeah, stuff. Yeah, as, as an improviser, um, I mean, your points of reference are, well, I don't know, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong. I, I guess I'm advancing the hypothesis that as an improviser, your points of reference are more kind of archetypal uh, things w- within the culture, right? Uh, rather than being, you know, what I mean? rather than being sort of strict speaking accurate in representation of things uh well the interesting interesting quote there that i can pull out is from mike myers of course who is an improviser not of course mike myers who of course was an improviser for a long time before he was in saturday night live uh who said never pass the ketchup pass the heinz uh and the idea being that the more specific you make the items that you pull into your work the the audience will respond to it more positively it'll be funnier um and, and i think that there's a couple of reasons why this is the case um chief among them i think is that it um it accesses their familiarity a little bit more because you don't generally think of ketchup as a um like when you encounter ketchup you encounter the whole bottle of it and its label right and all this other stuff like you don't just encounter this abstract concept of ketchup you don't you don't see the taste of ketchup when you open your refrigerator to get it that's not what the experience of ketchup is like the experience of ketchup to people is the combination of different kinds of signifiers and so to say past the heinz you give the audience an opportunity to recognize that you're also recognizing something about their ketchup right you could be like, hey, why don't you throw me that thing with the thing on the bottom that I can balance it on? You know, that opening, that newfangled thing. I mean, that's a terrible example, but like that says a different sort of thing about ketchup than saying pass the ketchup. Uh, and, and since part of what you're doing in improv is you're, you're trying to figure out things that the audience is going to recognize that they wouldn't expect to recognize, um, not just in terms of being surprising, but in the terms of, of, of like uh, kind of deliberately working against expectation a little bit. Uh-huh. In terms of a stage performance, yes, your character work is very archetypical, and the way that you channel emotion into the creation of a character is archetypical, but the way that you progress and, and put information into a scene does have to come from a place. I guess I'm, we're talking about the representational function here, too, and, but I do think that there is a frame of mind that you can be in that is open to the representational function functioning on that level that in and of itself is not representational. Like you can be in a frame of mind where when you reach for the ketchup in a scene, it's Heinz, right? Or when you like look around the room, you see, you know, the the 
picture of the dude with the mustache who's your uncle who you don't quite know very well. And like you see like the gables that the people who own the house previously had painted along the top of the dining room in which you haven't gotten around to fixing yet because sponge painting is too expensive. But, you know, your wife won't settle for anything less than sponge painting. Like you can see these things if you access this frame of mind that you have that is that can generate these kind of representational connections. And in that sense, research works in a non-representational way also because it gives you that confidence in that library, I guess, or just that experience of seeing a thing for the purpose. I mean, we've talked a lot about the research, what goes on when you're researching and you do a show that has been researched, but going to a ship to research what's going on there is a different thing than to go to that ship for any other purpose, um, right? Like you're, you're interacting with the ship in a different way um, and with, of course, its fine captain, who I know you're tremendously impressed by. <laughs> I, well, I didn't meet the commanding officer officer the, of the the ship but uh i yeah she is famous apparently uh, yeah. the uh, the commander of the USS Decatur uh is the only uh, woman of indian descent i think to command a US navy ship mm-hmm. uh you know and so uh the ship among its many distinctions has that one as well yep so, uh, so yeah so i mean i don't know if that we've gotten pretty far down the down the rabbit hole here um I don't know. Did you have some response for that, or should we like pull it up, for, pull our Inuyasha, Inuyasha ears up for air a little bit? Yeah, no, I think absolutely. I, do, oh, do Inuyasha take in uh, take in air through their ears? I don't. First of all, I don't know if Inuyasha can be pluralized. I have to look that up. And I also just oh, said I, I don't said, know. I said Inuyasha as. Oh, I see. I. I yeah, I was using it as plural. Yeah, as if there were like a whole species of Inuyasha that like live in this particular right. forest. And would um, be like if it were a, a, a Latin word, it would be Inuyasha, right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so so Inuyasha has family, like Seshimaru is uh, Inuyasha's older half brother. Um, and let's see what the character of Inuyasha. Do 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 do. Um, I'm going to see what the name is for that kind of. Uh, it's Inuyasha is a half demon. Nah. Um, he's a protagonist. He's a farmer. See, look at all these different labels that we live with through life. You know, like saying, "Hey, Inuyasha, how is your potatoes going?" Because you see Inuyasha as something that indicates to a father who's oh, born to a farmer is different than being, uh, "Hey, Inuyasha, how are your ears doing?" <laughs> um, anyway, uh, man. So yeah. So so I guess. Um, so do you feel like so Antoine Fisher has run at this point, right? Or is it still going to run in the future? Yeah, we did because it's a because it's a world premiere. We ran a week and then we uh, we shut it down to make changes and tweaks and improvements, and also to do this research trip that we couldn't schedule until now. And uh, and then we'll run it for one more week. Hey, if you're in the uh, Los Angeles area, uh, Google me and um, find my website, and there's information on it uh, there for uh, anyone who who wants to come see the world premiere of this play. And Antoine will probably be there. So uh, if you ever wanted to meet Antoine Fisher, who is like a, like an inspirational speaker, he's just an inspirational man. And he kind of speaks all over the country and he writes movies and stuff. Um, you know, uh, he'll probably be there. I also, I, I love meeting overthinkers because, uh, you know, we are an embattled minority, you know, uh, like living, you know, like, like, uh, players of magic, the gathering, I suppose <laughs> living only for the times when, when we can convene and sort of find each other, find other overthinkers. Yeah. So, so, so looking at this, I, I looked up the crew of battle of the movie battleship, yes. right? Cause that's, that is the closest that I can come to understanding what you're doing with Antoine Fisher. Right. Cause unfortunately, it's, it's actually, yeah, it's actually this, this very stirring and inspirational human story, uh, of, you know, forgiveness and overcoming and, uh, you know, rough upbringing in a, a foster home in, uh, Cleveland, Ohio is actually just like the science fiction naval war movie. <laughs> uh, 
which is based on a, a Hasbro board game. Yes. Um, a series of Hasbro board games yeah. that includes electronic battleship. Right. Um, and then what I notice is a man by the name of Mark Robert Taylor, who is listed. Now, again, they're, they're locating this in the art department. He's, his job, he has two jobs that are listed on the credits. He's credited as the assistant art director, and he's credited as a researcher. Um, which presumably means that he had to be – he's probably the person who went around to the various naval vessels and alien spaceships to determine how they were going to be represented in the film. Um, <laughs> but I'm looking at some of the other movies that he worked on, and it's interesting uh, that he's he, – he, if you want to understand, like, okay the, – the, what I'm saying is the connections between pop culture properties that are made along this level of work I find to be really interesting. Huh. So there, this is not Matt, – Matt talking about this process, our listeners, you might be thinking, oh, Matt is like a hippy-dippy graduate student. Uh, this is not true. He cut his hair off a long time ago. Right. Uh, he's neither hippy nor dippy, although he doesn't work a mean French press. Um, but I will say that, uh, that these functions are happening in pretty much every movie or television show that you watch. Right, that there's somebody who has to go and figure out, right, and like go to the place and figure out what the, and it's usually in art direction, and the actors are of course doing work like this very frequently, right? I, that's safe to say, right? That like in a lot of different projects, uh, people do stuff like this. Yeah, I mean, people who are who are responsible about it, and people who aren't responsible about it tend to, uh, I don't know, kind of leave the business through attrition or through not getting hired. Right, right, right. So, so what's interesting to me is like the list of. Uh, the list of films for which Mark Robert Taylor has done assistant art direction and research for. Well, he's listed only as assistant art direction on these ones, but it, it's an interesting through line. I just want to bring it up because it's, it's, it involves Battleship. It involves 8 Mile, the, uh, the M&M movie. The movie Solaris with George Clooney. The movie Up in the Air also with George Clooney. So that's like a spate of seven years where he worked on two different George Clooney movies. The show Alias, the show Las Vegas, both of which probably involved a great deal of research into all of the different kinds of high-budget settings and stuff. Um, the movie version of the uh, musical Rent. <laughs> um, the movie War of the Worlds. Ocean's 12 he also did. And uh, Fast and the Furious. Um, and the house bunny. So like, so these are movies that I wouldn't necessarily think of as, as related, right? Like, but the more that as I name them, I'm thinking like, there's some things that are kind of similar about how these movies look and how they feel. You know, like like Spider Man Two does kind of feel like up in the air at times. I suppose, <laughs> in you know, a, well, Pete, in a way that's in a well, in a, I mean, not in a way would we say that it's like up in the air because Spider Man swings from things, <laughs> um, but just like the way the suits are worn and like. I mean, I'm having to dig deep to try to think about all this stuff, but but it, it, it does come back to something I've talked about a couple of times on the podcast, which was one of my most profound pop culture criticism experiences, which was, of course, when I watched, I think this was 2005, the World Stunt Awards. Um, ah, yeah. Where, yeah, and like I've talked about this a couple of times in the podcast before, as I said, where in the World Stunt Awards uh, – gave awards to all sorts of movies. Actually, it might have been 2003. I think it was 2003 because Ballistic X vs. Sever was, was heavily honored, um, and that, and which is the uh, Antonio Banderas' Lucy Liu action movie. Heavily honored for its stunts. And there were a bunch of other movies that were heavily honored for their stunts that were just not honored by anybody else for any reason at all. Right. Um, and, uh, and Ballistic X vs. Sever for a while, although I believe it has been surpassed at this point, uh, was the worst reviewed movie on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, it was just at everybody, but it was very, the things that they managed to do in terms of spinning cars and jumping people off of things was really impressive. And it makes me think about this kind of research work that goes into the kind of broad complex of, of things that involve a, that collaborative, massive, almost 
like universe of art that comes together in like a big movie, right? Like uh, this is part of it, and it, this is part of the, the the mix of stuff that goes in there. Um, which of course is like runs counter to these ideas of the auteur, right? Like there is, is the director really the auteur if like the person who coordinated the stunts has this sort of independent life where they have like being honored for things that they did in the movie and, and they're speaking about their philosophy and all this other stuff. Um, you know, for a lot of time, I think there's a lot of stuff that happens now in our fragmented media economy, which we were talking about a little bit before, where you're seeing people bring out small parts of things as their own entertainments that otherwise would have been part of larger entertainments. Uh-huh. So, like, you could watch a TV show about a bunch of actors going to a naval vessel, right? And, like, talking to the people at the naval vessel about what the naval vessel is like because they're going to put on a play about it. This sort of matches up with what we did last week when we were talking about Smash, right? Uh-huh. But nowadays, people would be willing to watch that show about the people going to the destroyer to meet the Indian American captain, right? Like to to see what's going, a commanding officer to see what's going on, right? Like it, it, that seems to me as, as to be something that's interesting and sort of a metonymic part for the whole kind kind of way. Um, well, that's apostrophe. Oh, I'm forgetting which one that is. I always used to think of meta, metonymy as part for the whole, but then I realized I had it wrong like a no, couple of years ago. Synecdoche is part. For synecdoche, the whole. of course. Yeah. Thank you. Apostrophe is when you talk to somebody who's not there, which right. I hope our listeners are not are, are there and they're listening because I love them all. They're awesome. Oh, you got, you look listeners. Great. <laughs> oh, great listeners of the – yeah, that would be a, you know, an apostrophe. I mean that's uh, – our, our researcher and assistant uh, – our assistant set director, Mark Robert Taylor, probably works for you know, someone higher up in the art department and kind of always always comes with that. Uh, always comes with that person, you know what I mean? Probably works right. for the the production designer or one of the art directors or the uh, set decorator or you know something like something like that. Um, it's you know what I mean? It's fun. Yeah, it must. Be, it looks like Tom Froling, who was also the art director for Spider Man Two, was involved at some point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Anyway. Anyway. Well, right. Yeah. That's uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny to think of the sort of the the level of of research that goes into a movie. Actually, you know, just to bring it back to this experience I had the other day, um, the uh, the uh, guy giving us the tour uh, on the USS Decatur uh, had seen some of the uh, some of the. Uh, trailers for Battleship, and apparently there's stuff going on in Battleship that he says, and this is a quote. He says some of that is legit Navy, Navy stuff. Like they're they're wearing the uh, uh, they're wearing the proper uniforms, uh, for example. You know, right? They're they're not like part of Battleship Command, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> which is like Starfleet Commanders. Yeah, exactly, exactly. From the Federation of United Countries, that's like battling these aliens. They are the U.S. Navy, and yeah, they are wearing absolutely. U.S. Navy uniforms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that it requires that that the movie Battleship requires more research into the Navy than into the board game Battleship. Uh-huh. Although maybe it, maybe they did equal research into the board game Battleship and like, you know, how do people play it and like what kind of pegs are used? Where do the pegs get made? Maybe they film a lot of the shots in the same oceans and seas where the oil is extracted that is made into the pegs to make Battleship uh, parts. Well, that's hard to tell. I don't know where what kind of whether that kind of supplier stuff is ever tracked. Um, but you can go back and be like, well, which crude oil shipment did you take at your factory? Uh-huh. Uh, there's so many records of so many things. But yeah, oh, it is interesting stuff. And I and for a while, Matt, I have to confess, uh, I thought when I heard of Antoine Fisher, I something in my brain crossed wires, and I thought it was Antoine Mitchell and that Anthony Anderson was involved in some way. But he is not. Um, Antoine Mitchell being one of the major antagonists of The Shield. And for some reason, I thought in my head that it was a stirring story about one person's journey that starred uh, 
the guy from the Shield and not Denzel Washington. Yeah. So we need to correct uh, that mentally. And, and Anthony Anderson also did what, like uh, uh, Law and Order, the original, the Mothership series, right? Law and Order. Um, oh, let's find him on IMDb. Uh, Agent Cody Banks Two, The Departed. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Scream Four, also. All right. So I think we've come to a crossroads, Matt, and we need to ask ourselves. When we started this podcast, we had two topics we didn't want to talk about. <laughs> One of them was PayPal and what PayPal was doing to Smashwords and the, and the crisis over payment systems and the sales of small-time independent fiction and ebook distributors. The other one came from South by Southwest. Do we, is, do, dare we – like dare we – Broach this subject. Do we have no time? Hey, you it. know, I, I I say we give give the people a little extra uh, oh. this time if you if you want to. You okay, know. we'll cover it quickly. I didn't know whether we were near ah, the end. Yeah, we'll cover it quickly because we didn't know it was uncovered. Oh snap! So one of the big pieces of news that happened over the last couple of weeks is there were some major leaks of celebrity naked pictures that were taken privately and intended for private distribution and consumption by close friends and family. Not family. <laughs> what am I talking about? No, by close people in special relationships. And one of the things that happened at South by Southwest, and I'm reading this in the Huffington Post, um, not in anything that's particularly racy. You know, the Huffington Post is uh, owned by AOL, I believe. So we're really not on the cutting edge of anything right now. Right. Um, but she wrote an. Uh, uh, she wrote a letter about not being able to attend the the screening of the movie The Baby Makers, which presumably she is in. You should, and she say, made, you should say who it is. I mean, it's saying that it's Olivia Munn. Doesn't, oh, Olivia you know. Munn. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're talking about Olivia Munn. So Olivia Munn wrote an, wrote an, Olivia Munn had a bunch of pictures that she took of herself. And the interesting thing about the pictures, other than of course her state of un, relative undress, not all not all of them are necessarily nude pictures, but whatever. We're not going to get into what they were. We will say that they were. Uh, this is what I found interesting about the pieces, and, and she she parodies them in her response letter that she sent us up at Southwest because they were further expressed pur- purposeful consumption of a specific person. They were used. There was an image editor involved that used text to like indicate and explain things that were happening in the picture, right? Like uh, there was like captions, and there and they were like there was like arrows pointing at stuff, right? Which is like quite a bit more active control of the medium than most people are, uh, and fitting, I think, for a, G, a former G4 TV host, right? I don't know if she still does that anymore, but like somebody from the tech TV macro legacy, um, you know, involving that kind of like extra layer of, of editing, the image that she sent back to South by South west where she she it's her in a gown from a fox premiere and she she draws a gen, giant male genitals on herself for amusing effect and then she writes a whole a bunch of notes on it about how little she cares about the people who are giving her guff because of the private stuff that was taken without her knowledge or will from her private devices right like it was and then nuts- and with with these i mean you know i guess we would not be responsible journalists which of course we are or at least we you know we have researched responsible journalists and and kind of understand the gestalt the spiritual gestalt of them um, uh, if we didn't say that the authenticity of these pictures has, has been disputed, but, uh, of some of them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But, but, you know, still, I mean, still they're out there. I mean, they're a thing in the world now, you know what I mean? Yeah. They're out there in the world. And so and there was a, a similar ones of Christina Hendricks as well. Um, that were, that are out there in the world. And I think that what this, first of all, the first thing that, that we reacted to when we we're talking about it is how kind of Dada and deconstructive her response to it was by like creating an image in the style of the other images that were stolen to like criticize the stealing of the images and having it in a way that sort of like deconstructs and breaks down the ways that the images were working is like an interesting thing to do. You know, it's like almost 
it's it's almost the kind of thing that would be an art piece if it were on purpose. Although I guess is that a necessary condition for it being art? Probably not. Um, somebody could like lay it out as a as a um, art project, do it to themselves, and like compare the two. And I think the other side that we're just talking about is like this response. Um, to me shows more of a sort of end-to-end integration of this thing into like this sort of media um, like the media cycle uh, something this 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 is obviously it's a huge breach of privacy it's a terrible thing people shouldn't do it um, I lived with a guy from Hong Kong uh, a couple years ago when the Edison Chen scandal was breaking which was like the biggest news story that year outside of the United States where he had his laptop you know, you know, was was perused uh, by a guy repairing it and got a bunch of pictures, a bunch of prominent Hong Kong actresses, and it was a huge scandal, and he had to flee the country, uh, and he was living in Boston for a while. But uh, this is something that is going to continue happening because Wait, people you, are. He was your roommate. No, 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 no. Oh, I see. I'm not allowed to tell you. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. He was not my roommate. He was in Boston. My roommate, though, was from Hong Kong and had a lot of friends in the area who were from Hong Kong. And this was a news story that was like a big deal in the media over there. And, and uh, because he stayed connected, it was something he told me about as like a big pop culture story that was happening outside of the country. Um, the main point is this stuff. This is stuff that keeps happening. This is stuff that's going to continue to keep happening. Sometimes it happens on purpose. Most of the time it happens by accident. Uh, but how do you handle it? Right. And I think that this, this is a similar issue to the PayPal issue, which is like you're getting into a situation where there's a, a conflict between a business model and a cultural model. Right, where like in PayPal, you've got a cultural model that is devolved into many, many micro pockets of this sort of kind of literature. You have PayPal coming in with a very monolithic business model that, because of political pressures, needs to react to it in a very specific way. Olivia Munn has a little bit more freedom because she can write a snarky comeback, right? Because she's like nominally a comedic actress uh, and also like not really super famous. Um, you know, if, if, if this were made by Angelina Jolie, she wouldn't be able to do it. Right, like she wouldn't be able to do this kind of funny thing because she takes herself too seriously. It would be our- well, right. Yeah, it's a question of whether she. It's not a question of her level of fame. It's a question of how seriously she takes herself. I think. Yeah, and, and also specifically, like how actively, like the specific way in which her brand is actively managed by herself and her sure. public. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so in this case, she's capable of doing this. Are we going to see? This is a question I'll pose. I'm going to pose this to comments too. If this kind of scandal is going to keep happening. And I, think, we, I mean, I think it's safe to say that it, that, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but I do, no, no, no. I mean, I, in fact, I do mean to interrupt, but I don't mean any of the negative social things that we mean by interrupting. Uh, I, I, think, I think it's safe to say that this kind of scandal is going to keep happening because there are more and more phones in our lives, you know, yeah. uh, and, um, you know, th- there are more and more kind of devices, more and more computers in our lives and more computers means more security vulnerabilities and sort of as these things become ubiquitous, as we start to store information about ourselves, um, we, we, you just increase the attack surface, the potential attack surface. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, so these things are, so given that it is likely, given that these things, things are going to keep happening, yeah. what's, how essential of a professional skill is it going to be to be able to deal with them? Is this something that people are going to be like learned and, and training about as they get ready to do this sort of stuff? Are people who are good at it going to stand out? You know, is it the kind of thing where if you're good with dealing with this kind of problem, is that going to be a competitive advantage for you? I don't think that – I mean certainly the South by Southwest crew is a little bit mixed on Olivia Munn, right? Because uh, a lot of them like him for like him from G4, right? And they like her from Attack of the Show. But she also uh, took a lot of heat, which I thought was undeserved. But that's 
it's just because I like her as, as, a, as a comedic person and as a commentator. She took a lot of heat when she was hired by The Daily Show for being like insufficiently funny and for being hired because she was attractive, right? And this, of course, in the very gender-conscious world of this kind of social media stuff where this stuff is constantly talked about, she gets kind of a bad rap for being stupid, which I don't think she's stupid. Um, but, uh, but like I think this endears her to that crowd quite a bit relative to how it might have gone right like like certainly she comes out of it look if this is something that the people who people see she comes out of it looking better than christina Hendricks does whose pictures were also very casual and i just felt it was awful just that the the way that their personal the personal space would violate it like that it is anyway um the point is that you probably want to be the kind of person who knows this sort of thing is going to happen, and you probably want to be the kind of person who can turn it to your advantage. That's really all the point I'm saying is that maybe there will be ways that people get rooted, ruled out of, of being on this level you know, because they can't. Uh, maybe there will be brands, you know, ways of styling a person that will become untenable because they can't survive something like this. Like if you're trying to build a personal brand – you know, do you want to be the kind of actress who, if your per- pictures of you ever leak, you will have no recourse within your brand to deal with it? Yeah, right. I like, mean, like that's funny. I mean, what what will Disney teach its young? I mean, they have like uh, Disney boot camp for young actors and actresses. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, young actors, uh, children, really. You know, who are mm-hmm. who are kind of becoming stars in the Disney universe. They, you know, for how to deal with this kind of thing. And I'm sure it's a hard line of, you know, don't don't take such pictures i mean that is one strategy for yeah it didn't work for selena gomez or was that not selena gomez it was vanessa hudgens right she her pictures are leaked a bunch of years ago oh yeah Um, right yeah yeah yeah. Uh, right and it's yeah it just it right it sort of seems non untenable it's and you know yeah there are a lot of conversations that we can have because this this discourse can go in a lot of directions we can have we can have a normative conversation about uh how it um about how bad it is and what a kind of icky violation of privacy it is that that these things happen. Um, We can have a conversation also, uh, we can have a conversation about gender and about um, uh, the kind of gendered aspects of this and also kind of some of the sexual politics of this because it's... uh, uh, very, very intricate. It's very intricate, and uh, there's a lot to be to be said about it, about sexism, and about um, you know the internet and things like this. But the, the the conversation that you're raising, which I think is interesting, is a practical conversation. That is yeah. to say, given that this this seems to be a part of our world, uh, and will probably is probably on the rise. Uh, you know, electronics being what they are to us all. Um, given that. What can what can be done? You know, uh, yeah. what can be what can be done about it? I I I was always hopeful that the internet, the fact that like everything everybody does is available and viewable forever on this you know giant panopticon of the internet, um, would lead to a great rebirth of empathy and of you know fellow feeling among humanity for uh, you know for all of our foibles, right? Uh, that hasn't seemed to be the case. <laughs> Maybe, maybe it's working. Maybe it's working its way up. But yeah, certainly there. But also, but the thing is, it also births a parallel mechanism for dispensing vitriol and hatred, right? Like I, I would say that it raises this. It's a barbell. It raises the stakes on both sides, sure. right? Like um, that. Like it. There. I think that you do see more sympathy for people than you might otherwise see in certain circumstances, especially famous people. Um, 
but you also see more hatred. And, and I think, I mean, I think a good example of this, uh, and I know we're going over on time, but I don't know if you were up to speed at all. What happened to Woody Harrelson a couple of weeks ago um, when he went up. So he went on the website, Reddit. Right. And he did what's called an ask me anything, which is a, you, you say, okay, I'm here, uh, post questions in this message board thread. I will come here. I will come read the questions and I will answer them. And the questions are going to generally be, uh, in the, the culture of this place is the questions are on a wide variety of topics. Like there's a guy who goes by the name of pancakes or waffles who always asks everybody whether they like pancakes or waffles. Like the questions are all over the place. Um, he was doing this as part of his sort of um, promotion tour for his movie Rampart, just like a cop movie, right? Uh, it's a serious cop movie. And so he really only wanted to talk about Rampart. He's had a long and sordid history. Like he's done a lot of stuff. Um, and he didn't really want to talk about the other stuff. That's not, he's, he was thinking about it like appearing on Leno, right? Like people will probably toss him softballs and he could ignore the things he doesn't want to talk about. The first question, which got voted up to the top of the thread and was like front and center, was like, hey, Woody, a bunch of years ago, you came to the after party for my high school prom and you had sex with a girl there and you, she lost her virginity to you and you said you'd call her and you never called her and she cried for a long time. What do you have to say about that? Right? And this was, this was like 10, 15 years ago, but Woody, of course, at the time would have been much older. And like, and it was just a disaster, you know. Like every like Woody Woody Allison didn't really say anything, and everybody jumped on him, and it was just like it was just a feeding frenzy, and it was just a, you know, it was in certain media outlets, and it was just a public relations nightmare, right? And like, uh, I mean, that's another kind of example of I think an analogous phenomenon of like. You know, and, and then I think it was, was a similar one that happened a bit later. There was another actor who went on and uh, just talked about some random junk, and it was they loved them. You know, they, they love this. Oh man, you also wear high tops? Crazy. You know, like that's great. I identify with you so much. But this situation, there was just so much hatred. So I do think that the the closeness and the sociality of our interaction with these people emphasizes both the good things and the bad things that we can do to each other, and it gives us a lot of leverage to do both of those things. You know, like we can we can we can lynch mob people. You know, we can hunt them down and we can ruin their lives. Through the which, internet, if we well, want to. right, yeah, which 4chan has done, and I, not yeah. just 4chan, but 4chan and 4chan like communities uh, yeah. have done in a lot of uh, uh, a lot of cases. Yeah, yeah, I mean, not all of it, but definitely a subset of it. But yeah, I mean, definitely, and, and so in this case, I think the question is, well, what are the survival skills? Right. You know, and, and I don't think I really don't think the answer has to uh, the answer for most people. Everybody wants to think that they're the kind of person who can control their own message, and the answer is not to make any mistakes, right? Like, I mean, that's one way of approaching it, but I really don't think that's going to work for a lot of people. And I think that the more robust personal brands going forward are going to be the ones that are flexible enough to be able to talk about mistakes. Yeah. Um, yeah and, and again, it's not necessarily whether the person themselves feels they want to talk about it in a certain way or whether it's something that they feel comfortable doing. It's whether the construction of themselves that they present to the world is a construction that can engage in that dialogue without damaging itself too much. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, for example, you know, Katy Perry, Zoe Deschanel look kind of similar vaguely. I feel like Zoe Deschanel's personally constructed character could talk about issues that she encountered much more than Katy Perry's. Katy Perry's has to be controlled. And I don't know why, you know, but there feels to me like those are different personal brands. Yeah. You know what I mean? Russell personal brands even. Um, zing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, that's it for this podcast. Uh, thanks for, for hanging in with me and Pete. Uh, we hope we had an interesting conversation. I was interested by it anyway. I hope you were too, Pete. 
Oh yeah, I mean my my cords are about to kick out. I've drank most of this pot of tea, but you know what? You leave it all on the field. That's all we can ask. That's right, absolutely, and uh, that's yep. what we do for you. I I've also drunk all of my Yogi brand uh, decaf green tea kombucha, uh, the official tea of the overthinking of this of the West Coast overthinking a podcast. Yes, uh, and I uh, yeah. And, and honey lemon throat coat tea from Yogi, as well as the official East Coast right. over the Absolutely. And, and both are the official teas of uh, Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. <laughs> exactly. so the, uh, if you have anything that you want to say uh, about uh, the upcoming film Battleship, about research for dramatic or fictional uh, for uh, projects, for uh, for um, you know the the responsibility and the relationship of the representative and the uh, emotive or uh, uh, expressive functions of uh, works of art uh, about naked pictures of people and the I mean you know I don't know keep it clean it is overthinking it but we have a you know civil and uh, mature community but you know it's it's something that would be interesting to talk about um, about survival skills uh, for celebrities in the digital age let's put it that way or if you have anything that you want to say about ghost rider spirit of vengeance which is really <laughs> an inexhaustible font of overthinking uh you know you can call us at 203-285-6401 call or text 203-285-6401 you can email podcast at overthinking.com or you can leave a comment on the show notes for this episode uh we'll be back next week uh hopefully both of our voices will have improved because i had a cold this week too uh but uh pete you're a trooper for hanging in thanks very much thank you for listening and visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve Harvey Firestein makes an appearance whether we want him or not talk like this now i don't even have an option oh man i i'm, I'm committed to a three picture deal hey got- to all the to all the the haters in the comments who, who think <laughs> it's only me who does harvey you know oh come on this is what you're gonna see now i need some of those olivia munn survival skills because i <laughs> myself